In our sermon text, we're continuing in Luke chapter 1, continuing from this morning's sermon. We saw this morning how Gabriel came to Mary and announced the pregnancy that she would bear the Son of God. And now, from verse 39 onwards, we have Mary's response. She goes to Elizabeth, her cousin, and the conversation between her and Elizabeth, and then Mary's outburst of praise that we call the Magnificat. So we'll read from verse 39 onwards. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. I wonder if I asked you to list the top three things that you're excited about this Christmas period, what would you say? The top three things that you're getting excited about. Maybe it's that shiny new toy that you think is going to be there waiting for you under the tree. Maybe it's time off work, not having to get up at the crack of dawn and chase the bus. Maybe it's the food, that unique, slightly bizarre combination of sausages and bacon and Brussels sprouts. Maybe it's cuddles with the grandchildren, time with family. What would you put as your top three things that you're excited about? When the passage we've read... This build-up, you could say, to the very first Christmas, the anticipation of the birth of Jesus. It's a scene that is just bursting with excitement. Mary has made the journey. Having heard the angel's message, she's made the journey up to go and see her cousin, Elizabeth, who's now six months pregnant. And as she comes through the door, there's no time for small talk. There's no time to put... The kettle on, no asking about how the traffic was on the way up. There's this instant outburst of of blessing and of excitement and joy 
at what is about to happen. The Holy Spirit comes down on uh, John, just this six-month-old fetus in Elizabeth's womb, and, and this baby that has no words, has no way to express itself, leaps up in joy and excitement. And then Elizabeth opens her mouth, and in this loud voice, she gives this, this prophetic utterance, you are blessed among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then Mary, in turn, responds. As we'll see in the focus of our sermon, these, this amazing uh, hymn of praise to God from verse 46, as Mary opens her mouth and praises the Lord for all that is about to unfold, all that will happen in this first Christmas, as it were. And I want to give you this evening, very briefly, just the three things, the top three things that Mary is excited about. If you were to ask her what is at the top of your Christmas excitement list, three things that come out in this hymn of praise. God is the one who lifts up the lowly. God is the one who knocks down the proud. And God is the one who remembers his promises. As Mary reflects on the birth of Jesus, these are the the three things that fill her and Elizabeth there with her with excitement and joy. The first thing that excites Mary, God is the one who lifts up the lowly. Mary begins with this outburst of praise, verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I wonder how you would finish that sentence if this was the first time you were reading it. My soul magnifies the Lord. My my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? What is Mary so excited about? I praise God because he's placed me at the, the epicenter of human history. I praise God. I praise God because he has transformed my life. He's given me blessing that no one else could anticipate. What does she say? Mary says, I, I magnify the Lord. I rejoice in God my Savior because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Because God has noticed me. Because God has turned his gaze and looked at me in my low estate. Nothing about me that would earn God's gaze, nothing that has drawn his attention. He just looked at me, turned to see me, his servant. And that look, she says, that look, God's attention, that's going to transform my life. This warm smile of God's face will make me someone that all generations from now on will call blessed. God has seen me, someone who should have been far below his notice, off his radar. Because she says, verse 49, he's mighty. And he's, he's holy. His name is holy. He is, he's utterly beyond us. No one has power like him. He in his holiness is, is set apart. He's distinct. He's in, as it were, a league of his own. But he's noticed me and he's done great things for me. For me. For a young 
unmarried woman in a backwater of the Roman Empire, the mighty and the holy God, he's seen me and he's done great things for me. And then Mary from verse 50, she, she's at where broadens out the camera angle. And she says, well, it's not just me. I'm not, I'm not just a one-off. It's not just that God happened to be looking for someone who was, who was mean and, and despised and lowly and he picked me. No, she says, this is, this is the nature of God's work. This is a general principle that applies to God's people. That he, he pours out his mercy, not on the, the strong, on the, the well-equipped, on the impressive, on the overly zealous and righteous. He pours out his mercy on those who fear him. Those who, as it were, throw up their hands and say, you are God and I'm not. You can do all things and I can do nothing. God pours out his mercy on these people, she says. He's the one who comes and, verse 52, takes and and raises up those who are of humble estate. Those who, who, like me, have nothing to boast of. No impressive academic credentials. No uh, heritage, no fancy family lineage, no wealth, no status. God just comes and he lifts us. And he finds the hungry, verse 53, and he fills them. He doesn't just fill them, he fills them with good things. See, the incarnation shows us like nowhere else that God is a God who is so kind to the weak. Because God didn't just, as it were, look at the weak. God became one of the weak. A fetus in the womb of Mary. Nothing tells us, like the birth of Jesus, that God cares about the lowly, the despised, the ignored, the the obscure, the ignominious, those no one else notices. God lifts up the lowly. And isn't this a reason for us to get excited? Because if we're honest, as we come to the end of a year, and as we take stock looking back and looking forward, don't we have to recognize that we haven't been the people we'd like to be? That our circumstances haven't been the circumstances we would like to have in our lives? You look back and you, you feel that your, your marriage has hit a dead end. Or you're stuck in a job that is just wearing you down, or your health is deteriorating, or you feel that you're in this constant uphill, losing battle against sins that you ought to have been rid of years ago. Well, can't we rejoice with Mary that as we look at the birth of Jesus, we have this this proof, this undeniable proof that God cares about the weak and the lowly, about the hungry about those who, along with Mary, fear him and say, I can't do it, but you can. But there's something else that Mary is excited about that that fuels her praise here. And that's that God knocks down the proud. And this is surprising. Verse 51, it's 
Strong language, isn't it? God has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And then verse 53, he's taken the rich and he's sent them away empty. Those who raise themselves up against God, the powerful, the strong, the impressive, have been, as it were, taken by the scruff of their neck and hurled down from their thrones. And when the rich come, verse 53, the door has been slammed in their face. In fact, worse than that, they've been sent away empty. What they thought they had has been taken from them. Now, if you're anything like me, you read these words and you think, well, it's not very Christmassy. It sounds a bit more like a communist manifesto than a Christmas carol. The rich taken down, the poor lifted up, the wealth redistributed. Why is, why is Mary so excited about this? What has this got to do with the birth of Jesus? You may have been tracking the promises over the Advent period. Sometimes there are these Advent readings, some of you may have done, where you follow the promises of Jesus throughout scriptures, the promise that God will send his son. And if you've done that, you'll, you'll have noticed that this, this idea that the strong will be uh, knocked down, the proud uh, pulled off their thrones, is at the very heart of almost all of the promises of God sending his son. The very first promise. When is the first time that God tells the world that he'll send a savior? Genesis 3 15, the seed of the woman. And what will this seed do? It'll crush the head of the serpent. Numbers 24, as Balaam looks out at Israel, and he says, one day a star is going to rise in Jacob. The scepter is going to come from Israel. What will that star do? What will that ruler do? He'll crush Moab. Isaiah 7 that we read this morning, or Isaiah 9, these amazing promises, the virgin giving birth, the, the prince of peace coming to dwell amongst us. It's against the backdrop of military conquest. The rod of the oppressor snapped in Isaiah 9. Syria defeated Isaiah 7. Right at the heart of, of God's promise is this uh, a victory, this language of, of conquest and, and destruction against the proud and the strong and the rich. You see, we're perhaps more familiar with the first point, the weakness that there is in the incarnation. That God becoming man shows us the the incredible grace as God stoops lower than we would ever imagine. But we often miss the strength that there is in the incarnation. God becoming man. God dwelling amongst us. It's as if, verse 51, God, as it were, pulling up his sleeves and, and showing the strength with his arm on our planet, coming down. And now there is a ruler who, who lives amongst us, who has more power at his disposal than anyone else, any other ruler, any tyrant, any despot, anyone who has ever trampled on God's people before. God dwells amongst us. And you can understand Mary's excitement. Finally, finally, there is someone on my side who has more strength than all of the kings put together. All of the arrogant who, who in their thoughts imagine themselves up there in heaven on the throne of God. Finally, they will be silenced. Finally, those who, who have set themselves up against God and his people will be brought down. And the rich 
those who boast great things, who think they have it all, who have no need for God, finally, there is someone who will show them the truth. Finally, there is strength on earth. And again, isn't this such a, a joyful message? That there's power in the birth of Jesus. Then you grow sad when you see the, the fate of the church around the world, the persecuted church, brothers and sisters who cowering in fear of their lives. Can't we rejoice with Mary that there is strength in the birth of Christ? Or you grow anxious as you see the church in the West and you, you imagine where will it be? Where will it be in our children's days, in our grandchildren's days? What will happen to this church that in many places seems to be weak and dwindling? There is power as God has come to dwell amongst us. Or you feel the, the injustice. You, you, you strive to honor God in, in your work or in your studies. And the result is loss, falling behind, doing what you know to be right, working with integrity, studying with integrity. And yet no one seems to notice. And if they do, there's this jeering smile or the mockery of family or of siblings or of co-workers for trying to honor God. The strength, says Mary, in the incarnation, the one who has come and dwelt amongst us, has power. He will bring justice. And there's one other thing that Mary is excited about here. She's, she rejoices as you see God stooping down and lifting up the lowly. And she rejoices as you see God coming to dwell amongst us and the power that there is there. And she also, finally, she rejoices as she sees that God remembers his promises. If Mary had typed up this uh, hymn of praise and submitted it as a school or university of silence, she would have instantly failed for plagiarism. There were virtually no... uh, Lines in this that aren't taken from other authors, from other places in scripture. It's a big copy and paste job, almost word for word. And she's gone all over the scriptures, Exodus 21, Samuel 2, full of the Psalms, 103, 113, 138, from Job 5, Job 12. You can see if you have one of the Bibles that tracks these scripture references, it sort of explodes when it gets to this point. All of the references, all the way through the Old Testament. Why does Mary do this? Why, why does she not come up with something original, as it were? Why is she, she quoting all of these lines from all of the prayers and praises of God's people in the past? It shows us, for one, that Mary was steeped in Scripture. This remarkable young girl who, who seemed to have such a knowledge of God's people from the past. But I think more than anything else, it, it reminds us that what is happening here in Mary's life is the fulfillment of all of the hopes and and the prayers and the high points and the low points of God's people for hundreds upon hundreds of years. It's all being fulfilled in this moment. We sang this morning, didn't we, O little town of Bethlehem, that line that the hopes of the years, they're, they're met in you tonight. And we see that explicitly, this sort of bracketing of Mary's uh, uh, hymn of praise. Elizabeth looks at Mary, verse 45, and before Mary bursts out, Elizabeth says, look, you're blessed because you believe that there would be a fulfillment 
of what was spoken to you from the Lord. You believe that there would be a fulfillment. And as Mary comes to the end of her own hymn, verse 54, she says, God, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He's done, verse 55, what he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This event, in other words, is is the pinnacle of years upon years, generations upon generations of God's promises to his people. She as Mary anticipates the birth. She, she shares the hope of Job, who as he lay in the dust said, but I do believe that God will one day raise up the weak and lowly. And she triumphs with Miriam, who came out of the Red Sea, and says, God has, has exalted over the horse and his rider. He's thrown them down. She echoes the words that Moses heard on that lonely mountain in the wilderness. That God's mercy is to generation upon generation of those who fear him. She prays with Hannah, as Hannah looks lovingly at her son Samuel and rejoices that God is the one who has turned away the rich and filled the hungry with good things. With David, she praises that God is good to the weak and to the lowly. This moment that has been anticipated for so long is finally realized in the birth of Jesus. God remembered the word he spoke. What a reason to be excited. The incarnation proves to us that when God gives a promise, it will come to pass. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in our lifetime, but God will bring to pass what he has promised. He will remember the word he spoke to Abraham, to the patriarchs, the word he's spoken to us. His promise to build the church, even if the gates of hell try and prevail against it. The promise that one day our lowly body will be transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body. The promise that one day there'll be a new heaven and a a new earth where righteousness dwells. The promise of the Lord's table that one day this meal will be replaced by a banquet, a feast in the presence of the Lamb. As we look at the incarnation, we can say with Mary, God remembers what he promises. He fulfills the word he speaks. So can I encourage you as we approach the Christmas period and all of the exciting things, the family and the presents and the food and the fun and the time off work. Take time to rejoice with Mary. Take time to reflect on the birth of Jesus, that in this moment we see a God who who stoops down and lifts up the lowly. In this moment we see a God who is strong enough to topple the tyrants and the despots of this world. And we see a God who is faithful enough to do exactly what he has promised. Let us pray. Our Father, we share the excitement, the exuberance of Mary as we think about this stupendous event of your Son, the Son of God, coming into the world. We praise you that In his birth, we see such hope. Hope for those who are unnoticed by the world. We see such power and we see such faithfulness. 
We thank you for all of this now. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.